Everybody sits as far back in the corners as you can, so when the camera's on me, it doesn't look like anybody's in the building. Like everybody is hiding. Okay, a couple of announcements to remind everybody about. We have men's prayer breakfast this Saturday morning. I think the announcement that went out had it wrong. It's 7.30, not 7. Uh, so the men's prayer breakfast and then deacons meeting is at 9 o'clock. So... Um, Take note for the men to be here at 7.30. Also, again, for the live streamers, we're still working on uh, getting some of the problems resolved. We need to know if you have problems. I've talked to about three people who said, well, you know, I had a little glitch the other day. Did you tell us? No. What part of, if you have any problem, 30 seconds, one minute, whatever, if you have a problem, we need to know so that we can map out what, where these things are happening and what's going on. So if you're live streaming and there's a glitch, please let us know. There's a place on the website on the live stream page where you can fill out a form and just tell us where you are and when it happened and the other information that's there. Jeff? Can you explain that? It's the little... Then it says post your question here. Yeah, yeah. Where it says post a question. Yeah, where it says post a question here. Just uh, do that, and then we'll we'll get that information. So that's uh, that's the important thing. And uh, we may we're looking at some other solutions, and we may have a really good solution by this time next week. But don't hold your breath. You never know in the devil's world. Where it says yeah, where it says post the question here. So I think that pretty much covers everything that I needed to cover. <clears throat> Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, then uh, that gives you the opportunity to make sure that you're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by uh, the Spirit and uh, confessing uh, sin if necessary. And then uh, that will make sure that this is a spiritually profitable time. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have this time to come together to be refreshed by your word, to be encouraged and strengthened. For each day we face a multitude of tests and a lot of different situ situations, circumstances, adversity. And we need to be reminded of your faithfulness, your goodness. We need to be reminded of the eternal realities of your word and that God the Holy Spirit strengthens us, encourages us, and sanctifies us by means of your word. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight and we reflect upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we reflect upon his example of humility and obedience, that you will help us to understand how we are to implement that and apply those principles in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, and we're continuing where I left off last time with a little bit of review dealing with the issue of humility as exemplified in the person of Christ. As we see in 1 Peter 2, which is our study, 
that the example that Peter gives, and this is really important to understand, the, the thrust of what Peter's talking about is not just submission to authority or authority orientation in a normal circumstance, but he's talking about authority orientation when it's in adverse circumstance, when the person in authority isn't quite doing things the way they ought to. Slaves are to submit to their masters even if they are harsh. And he will go on from that to talk about wives and to talk about the role of husbands as well. But the ultimate example that he gives is of Jesus Christ, who is obedient to the Father, submits himself to the Father's will, enters into human history, and is obedient even to the point of death. He humbles himself, as we see in Philippians 2.8, he humbles himself by being obedient. This is... This is so critical. So uh, I got into the main part of this last week in Philippians 2, and I just want to wrap it up, uh, wrap it up this evening. So what we are going to look at is conclude the section with the Lord Jesus Christ and his humility, and then we'll go back and begin to talk about the role of wives and husbands, the significance of submission, and uh, as well as strong families. So the basic passage that we're looking at, Philippians 2, is verses 5 to 11. It's laid down the groundwork in verses 1 through 4 that there are certain realities that we have in, in, in Christ. As believers, these are all true expressed by those if clauses in verse 1. If or since there is encouragement in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, and affection and mercy, then we're to fulfill Paul's joy by being like-minded, being of the uh, of the same mind. And that same mind is not something that is determined by us, but it's determined by uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, boy, my volume really jumped up. Did you hear that? Somebody back there, somebody back there fell asleep on the switch. You can't hear me? You can hear me now. Can you hear me now? Okay. If you can't, get a hearing aid. Okay. I did. You can too. Okay. It's real simple. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Okay, so in Philippians 2.5, we have this command repeated. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the paradigm for humility. That's who we look to. And the example has to do with the process of the incarnation, something good to talk about at Christmas time. Jesus entering into human history, and we saw this last time who, although he existed, and the word there of existed doesn't mean coming into existence. That would be the the uh, verb genomai, but it's a word that would indicate continual existence, who, although he uh, continually existed in past time in the form of God. And that word, uh, ultimately, it has to do with the the essence of God. Uh, the word in and of itself doesn't fit that, but it that's the sense of it. That's the meaning of it, and we'll see that in the paraphrase. The form of God, and he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, which is an awkward understanding. So I paraphrased it or expanded the translation this way, who, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally existed with identical essence to God, and that word identical essence refers to mode, really morphe would have, uh, the idea of, of, uh, of a form of existence or mode of existence. Only someone who's fully God can have the mode of existence of God. And therefore, the implication of that is that this refers to, uh, to his essence, even though that may not be the exact definition of the term morphate, that's how it's used here. And I talked about the meaning of that. It goes back into 5th century B.C. where it did refer to the essence of a thing, but um, that, that's not what it, how it's used in the Bible most of the time, and that's not how it was used in the 1st century. 
that he, although he had existed with the identical essence or the same mode of existence as God, yet he did not think. And I ask this question, is this thinking, this mental attitude, part of his deity or his humanity? Those are the kinds of questions you should ask. And I pointed out that since the incarnation doesn't occur until verse 8, this is talking about his thinking prior to the incarnation. We'll see what his thinking is after the incarnation in a minute. But uh, before the incarnation, he demonstrates authority orientation as the son to the father. That doesn't mean he's less than God. I keep emphasizing that because the message that has been pounded into women in this country due to the human viewpoint message of of uh, radical feminism is that to be uh, for a person to submit means inherently that they're less equal, and that's just just hogwash. So uh, there there is this eternal existence. Uh, And in that mode of existence, he did not think that equality with God was a claim to be asserted. That's the meaning of something to be grasped. He was God, but he didn't think that he had to assert that. When you're God, you're God. You don't need to convince anybody you're God. It's self-evident that you're God. So he's not asserting that claim. And then we get into the essence of the uh, of the next of the rest of the verse that he emptied himself by means of taking the form or the nature of a servant. This means that in entering into human into human history, he takes on or adds on humanity. He doesn't give up his deity. He doesn't ever become less than God. He willingly restricts the use of his attributes. And I pointed that out last time, that often the way you hear that definition from any number of theologians is that he willingly restricts the independent use of his attributes. And one day as I was reflecting on that, I thought, did Jesus or did the second person of the Trinity ever use his attributes independent of the will of the Father. Never. So that word independent is unnecessary. So he empties himself, adds, and that's defined as adding the form of a servant. And emptying himself really has to do with limiting that use of his divine attributes. And by means of coming into existence. Now, there's the Greek word genomai, which means to take on or to begin a new mode of existence. Take comes into existence in the physical form of man. Now, this is where we stopped last time, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And here we have the verb tapainao, which is a focuses on that attribute of humility. This is the verb form, uh, not the noun form, which has been used previously, but it has the same way, same idea, which is to see oneself in proper relationship to reality or to be place oneself under the right authority. Go back sometime and read through the book of Numbers and read about all of the things, all the ways in which the Israelites rebelled against Moses and read how strong Moses was as a tough, strong leader. And the Bible says that he was the most humble man that existed. And the reason isn't because... He was meek and mild and let people run over him because it's obvious that they didn't, but because he submitted to God's authority. He was completely oriented to God's authority. Humility for Moses wasn't that he was a certain kind of gentle, sweet person, but that he was always properly oriented to God's to God's authority. That's why he's humble. This is the same thing we saw with Jesus. And the same word or the noun form is applied to both, um, or applied to Jesus as well as to to, uh, Moses. Now, 
He humbled himself, tapenao, by becoming obedient uh, to the uh, death on the cross. Now, the first word that's used here, being found, that's what should be underlined here, being found, is this word herisco, and it means to discover something. He was he was discovered to be, and that's a sort of a uh, man-centered way of describing it, an anthropo, uh, anthropocentric term, being found in appearance as a man. And that word uh, indicates that he uh, is discovered in appearance as a man and he's always truly a man. He is truly human. And in his humanity, he humbles himself by being obedient. So this is following the incarnation. So before the incarnation, we just in his deity, he submits to the authority of God. After the incarnation, in his humanity, he submits to the authority of God and is obedient. He becomes obedient. And that's the word down at the bottom that's translated by becoming, and it indicates something is coming into existence. That's in terms of his humanity, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because Jesus has, in his humanity, has to grow spiritually. It's not that he sinned, but that he has to, as Hebrews says, he has to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. So he's found in appearance as a man, and that's a word that indicates the outer appearance, form, or shape, focusing on who Jesus is as a man. Now this, as I I quoted this verse a minute ago, in Hebrews 2.10, we read that it was fitting for him, for whom are all things. Now, when you see that phraseology, for whom are all things, that is not, I wouldn't go there to support the deity of Christ, but that certainly indicates the deity of Christ, that all things, um, excuse me, uh, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, the him there is God the Father. Uh, when I read that verse independently, I always tend to think it's, start off thinking it's the Lord Jesus Christ, but the context is it's God the Father, because he's the one who brings many sons to glory, and it is God the Father who perfects the author of their salvation. So the hymn is God the Father. It was fitting for him, for God the Father, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. That's all believers who are our church-age believers in context who are adopted into the royal family of God. To perfect, that means to bring to completion the author of their salvation. That's the Lord Jesus Christ through suffering. So Jesus had to grow and mature in his spirituality and his spiritual life. He is without sin, we're told. But he uh, matures through going through adversity. And that's the idea. That's a key word there we find many places, such as Galatians Galatians, uh, 3, 4, as well as Galatians 5.16, Galatians 3, 3, and 4. So all of this from 5 to 10, folk, uh, excuse me, from 5 to 8 in Philippians, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, talks about the servant's humility. And then the last three verses talk about the servant's exaltation. The path to glory is through submission to authority. The path to glory is through submission to authority. Whereas the sin nature, which is self-oriented, says the path to glory is through self-assertion. And so we have people taking assertive, assertiveness training, which is the opposite of the biblical standard here. The servant's exaltation is through submission to the authority of God. So we read in Philippians 2, 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. First he humbles himself by being obedient to the point of death. Then God highly exalts him and gives him a name which is above every name. 
It's a new title. He is now the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is referred to in 2 Samuel 22:47, Psalm 18:46, Psalm 46:10, and Psalm 56:5, a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of those in heaven, and of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the thrust of that last verse is often misconstrued by those who hold to liberation theology. Excuse me, not liberation, lordship theology. They hold to lordship theology, and what they're saying is we have to submit to the authority of Christ. And you see, even those who are unbelievers are forced to submit to the authority of Christ because they think of lordship as referring to the authority of God. That's not what the text is saying here. The problem when Jesus came among the Jews wasn't his authority, although that was. The problem was they didn't recognize him to be Yahweh, to be the Lord. And what will happen is that at, at the, in the future, that every tongue will admit that Jesus Christ is God. All the Muslims are going to enforce that. Islam, at its very core, has a message that Jesus is not God. Jesus is only a prophet. It is a militant, satanic message that is totally against the deity of Christ. If you were able to go into the Dome of the Rock... Uh, today, and you were to read the Arabic inscriptions that are written all over the inside of the Dome of the Rock, all of those inscriptions are verses out of the Quran that refute the deity of Jesus and emphasize the humanity only of Jesus, that he is only a prophet, that he is not born of a virgin, that he is not the God-man. The whole emphasis in and Islam is ultimately to refute the deity of Christ, the claims of Christ to be the Son of God. And so they they disbelieve that, and that's what they are trying to bring everyone into submission for. When they say Allah Akbar, that doesn't mean God is great as it is often mistranslated. It means Allah is the greatest. Allah is the greatest, greater or greater, greater than who? Allah is greater than Jesus. Allah is greater than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a theological statement. The Dome of the Rock exists as a statement of Islam's conquest over Jerusalem and is a visible statement that it is superior to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and superior to Jesus. When you're standing on the Mount of Olives, level with the with the top of the Dome of the Rock and you're looking straight across uh, horizontally, you can see that the Domes on the Church of the Holy uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre are below the top of the Dome of the Rock. That is a visual statement of the superiority of Islam over Jesus. That is its main folk main reason for existence is to assert its superiority over Jesus. So their the message is that Jesus isn't God. But the scripture says that at one point every tongue will admit that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is predicted in Isaiah 45:23, where God said, I have sworn by myself the word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. So that we learn from this whole illustration in Philippians 2 that Jesus is exalted because of his humility and he is humble by being obedient to the point of death. So he, if he grew and mature, uh, matured, so shall we. Now let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. The argument in First Peter 
is that his audience, primarily Jewish background believers, that they are going to face a certain amount of adversity in life, and it is through that that they are going to realize their uh, inheritance, that inheritance that has been reserved for them in heaven. As we read back in um, verse 4, they uh, we've been saved to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, that is ultimate um, glorification, which will be revealed in the last time. And then it goes on to talk about the testing of their faith through various trials in verse 6, that the genuineness of their faith, uh, more precious than gold, will be found to the praise, honor, and glory uh, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the judgment seat of Christ. Now, as we went through chapter, the rest of chapter 1 and down into chapter 2, we saw that in chapter 2, verse 17, there is a command statement that it basically summarizes uh, the verses previous to that, but it also sets up a transition for the next section. The section leading up to verse 17 from 13 to 17, talks about submission to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And then there are, there's a conclusion with four imperatives. Now, this is important to understand the significance of the grammar. A, a lot of people, myself included, have stumbled over some of these uses, uh, but it's important to break it down because it helps us understand what what Peter's saying when it comes into the next section where he talks about wives and then husbands. You have four commands here, honor, love, fear, and honor. All of these are active voice commands. That means the person addressed is supposed to perform the actions. We are to honor everyone. Everyone, doesn't matter what their political belief is, it doesn't matter what their uh, race is, what their creed is, we honor everyone because they're created in the image and likeness of God. We are to love the brotherhood. That emphasizes believers. We are to love one another because Christ loved the church. This is what Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four and 35. We are to fear God. That is submission to divine authority. And we are to honor the king, submission to the temporal authorities that God has placed over us. That is our volitional decision. Now, these are all imperatives. Now, the first one's a Aorist imperative. The others are present. There's different nuances there. But the main thing here, these are all imperatives addressed uh, to us. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, when we get into the next couple of sections... Related to uh, servants in verse 18, and related to wives in chapter 3, verse 1, and then related to husbands in 1, 7, the grammar tells us something, something interesting. These are not imperative commands. They read that way in the English, the way they're translated, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. But it's not an imperative in the Greek. Uh, husbands are to dwell uh, with their wives with understanding, but that's not an imperative in the Greek. Servants, be submissive to your masters. It's not an imperative. These are all participles, as as I have over here in the box. They're present middle participles. Now, the I did I did identify them as an imperatival participle. Not quite. I wasn't looking far enough back in the context here. These participles in 2.18, translated be submissive to servants, 3.1, wives be submissive, and then in 3.7, dwell, explain how the imperatives are to be fulfilled, how they are to be implemented. Okay? You have a command to do something, and then typically what happens is that command is followed up by a series of participles that will be uh, translated as, should be translated as participles of means. Uh, 
Uh, they still have an imperatival force because they are adverbial. And remember, this is basic grammar. Don't let your eyes glaze over. An adverb modifies a verb. So if the verb has an imperatival sense, the adverb that's modifying it is also going to have an imperatival sense. But it's explaining how to fulfill that. Let me, let me show you what we have here. What we have is a command initially that we're to honor, love, fear, and honor. How do you do that? The way that is played out is by being, by slaves being submissive to masters, by wives being submissive to husbands, and husbands living with their wives in understanding. You see the same kind of thing in Ephesians from Paul. In Ephesians 5.21, which comes Two, three verses after Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18, you have a command. What's the command? Be filled by means of the Spirit. And then in verse 21, we're told one of the ways that we are, that we demonstrate that filling, I think it's a result, a participle of result, that one result of being filled by the Spirit is submitting to one another in the fear of God. Notice, we are all to submit to one another. That's grace orientation. We're all going to treat each other with the benefit of the doubt. Even somebody who's not an authority over us that comes along and says, I think it ought to be done this way, we're not going to say, I'm your boss, you're an idiot, go do something else. We're to listen and consider uh, well-meaning Options presented by those under us. That's part of leadership. So we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. But ultimately, there are roles that come into effect within the family. Wives are submitted to their, are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, not to some other husband. I think it's interesting that in both Peter and Paul, they have that, the word own there. To make sure you understand you submit to your own husband, not to some other male. Okay, so it's not making a statement that men are categorically superior to women. It's talking about structure and order within the home. And as we'll see, this was uh, one of the reasons Peter and Paul both emphasize this is because in their particular uh, context uh, in the Roman Empire, there was a strong emphasis on a certain structure of authority within the family. And if Christianity came along and was perceived to upset or overturn that order in the home, they still, in in Greco-Roman culture, they understood that the family, we've forgotten this in our country, that the family is the core to stability and survival of a nation or an empire. And if there's no strong, not a strong family, then the nation will collapse within a generation. And we are in danger of that in our culture. So we're all in the body of Christ. We're all to submit to one another. That's related to the fact that we're all in the image and likeness of God. Wives are submit to their own husbands, but husbands are to love their wives. Notice wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. There's that correlation. How you submit to your husband relates to how you submit to the authority of God. There's a correlation there. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Well, for a husband to fill that out, he better spend a lot of time studying the scripture to learn how Christ loves the church. That's going to be the pattern. To be a good husband, you have to be a student of how Jesus is the husband of the of his bride, the church. So we have the same thing here. We have these universal statements of how we are to orient to one another. Here it's submit to one another. In Peter, it's to honor all, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So when we come to our passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, 
when we read what is going on here, it says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, one thing, and I didn't put a slide on this, but one thing I wanted to bring out in terms of this understanding uh, submission here, let me, no, it's not there. Okay, is in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. I was going to bring this out as an example. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is usually referred to as the Great Commission. And the way it's typically translated in most English translations is go, therefore. And the go is translated like it's a command. But it's not an imperatival verb. It's a participle. And Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples. That's your imperative right there. Make disciples. And then you have two participles, baptizing and teaching. That's the same kind of thing we have here in terms of grammatical structure. The first go, and and if you're a first-year student or second-year student of Greek and for a long time, I mean, that's what you'll hear. You'll hear many sermons saying, well, Jesus isn't telling them to go. He's telling them to baptize and teach. And the, and the way that participle ought to be translated is as you are going or when you are going as, as a temporal participle. But again, you have the same situation that you have in, in First Peter is that the, the mood of the participle is often uh, influenced by the finite verb. So since the finite verb is imperatival, the participle also picks up that same nuance. So translating it as an imperative to go is not wrong. In fact, the more I study Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the more I think that's what Jesus is telling them. Go and make disciples. Grammatically, that makes very good sense. The How do you make disciples? That's the imperative. You make disciples by baptizing. It's a same kind of thing. It's a... Uh, adverbial participle of means, by baptizing and by teaching. Those are the ways that you make disciples. So the same thing in First Peter. Honor, honor all, all, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Well, how do you do that? You do that by being submissive to authority. So that fits the same pattern as we have over in, in Ephesians. This is a grammatical concept. So we read, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they, that is the wives, uh, no, excuse me, when they, that is the husbands, observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Now, just because you think that maybe the that old King James Version or the New King James Version made it a little harsh, here's the New uh, English translation known as the Net Bible, the NET Bible, and it reads, In the same way, wives, be subject to your own husbands, then even if some are disobedient to the word, uh, they will be won over without a word by the way you live, and when they see your pure and reverent Conduct. So, as we look at this, there's a few things that we have to understand in light of the background, in light of the background to First uh, Peter, as well as to what Paul is saying uh, in Ephesians. As we look at this verse, it starts off in the same way, and it's making a comparison a comparison to what he said about slaves. In verse 18, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, that is, with respect and reverence. So then in three one, when he says women, likewise, he said just like the slaves. You're to be submissive in your, in, to the one who is in authority over you. Now, this is a difficult concept I have found, uh, for a lot of women in our culture to understand. And I think that if you're under 30, it's even worse. If you're under 40, it's not as bad. But each generation since the 60s has found this to be more and more uh, unpalatable. So we have to really take it apart. Part of it is because the passage has been abused. Part of it is because... Uh, 
we have been abused by a lot of the ideas related to role distinctions in marriage in our human viewpoint culture. So here's the first principle for interpretation. We must interpret the scripture in light of the time in which it was written. You've heard that many, many times. We have to interpret the scripture in light of the time in which it was written. But we have to understand what that means, and we have to understand what it doesn't mean. Because that statement, interpreting the Bible in light of the time in which it was written, is often abused badly. What that doesn't mean is that that was then and this is now. That in that culture, this was a problem of one type or another, and therefore when we understand that situation, this was necessary to say it that way then, but we're living in a different time, a different era, a different dispensation, and so we have to interpret it differently. That's not what interpreting the scripture in light of uh, the times means, in light of that culture means. Neither does it mean that we say that these standards that the scripture sets forth for marriage, for family, or roles within the marriage or family were culturally determined. This is what typically happens. In first Peter chapter two verses I mean excuse me, first Timothy chapter two, verses eight through twelve, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And so the common uh, uh, approach to that, based on the human viewpoint uh, thinking of today, is that, number one, Paul's just expressing his opinion. That's not what's going on there, because at the bottom line, he goes to creation for his, his pattern, not for anything in the culture. Second, there's an attempt to say, well, this was a particular problem with uh, rebellious women in the congregation of Ephesus. Again, it, if you look at the passage, it's not culturally determined. Uh, Paul goes back to the role of Eve and Adam in order to establish the pattern. It's, or, it's the order of creation, not the order of the, of the culture. But why do Peter and Paul have to emphasize these things? Ah, now that's the issue. What was going on culturally in the Greco-Roman culture that made them emphasize the creative, the creation role distinctions between men and women? Okay? They're nuanced, but there's, that doesn't mean that the application changes any today. But the reason he, they have to emphasize it does. So we have to look at that. That's what it means to interpret in the light of the culture. What were, because in the Greco-Roman culture at that time, they had a strong emphasis on family and marriage. But like all human viewpoint cultures, they distort the creation uh, mandate. So that women always seem to get shortchanged by a, by the men in the culture. So it's true that the, uh, that, that there were role distinctions in the Greco-Roman family and that they understood that that was necessary to have stability in the home, but they distorted it to the detriment of women. So the first principle here is that we have to interpret this in light of the culture, in light of the times. The second principle is that in most human viewpoint-based cultures, whether it's an Asian culture in Japan, an Asian culture in China, an Asian culture in India, whether it is a Slavic culture in Russia, Ukraine, Poland, Czechoslovakia, whether it is a Western European culture, whether it's a Greco-Roman culture, whether it's a pagan American culture of contemporary, uh, contemporary times, women tend to be treated as less than equal to men, except in certain matriarchal cultures. The problem is there's never been a successful matriarchal culture. They have all imploded because that violates God's standard of man being the leader in the home and man being the leader in the, uh, in, in, in the culture. 
uh, matriarchal cultures never reach above the primitive. You've never heard of any advanced civilization that came from a, a culture that rejected uh, male leadership in the home. Now, to understand this, we have to go back to what I taught two or three lessons back in terms of the makeup of God. Again, this goes to the very heart of the issue, which is that an authority relationship, a submission relationship, doesn't imply inequality. But what happens in human viewpoint is they always twist it to make it mean inequality. For example, in Islam, women are just barely above... uh, servile, domesticated animals. Maybe they're below the camel. They're they're not worth as much as the camel. They are terribly devalued. And so this does not reflect divine viewpoint. When they say women need to submit to the man, they don't mean what the Bible means. Because when the Bible says that women submit to the husband, it's two equals. But one is in charge and responsible, and the other is not. And that does not demean the person who is in the position of of obedience. And this is seen in the person of God. When we look at the triune God, there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are equal to each other. The Father is not smarter than the Son, The Son is not smarter than the Holy Spirit. Neither the Son nor the Holy Spirit are less powerful than the Father. They are equal totally in essence, so that the Son is God, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. They are equally God. There's no superiority in the uh, essence of any one of them. But they are not the same person. The Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are three distinct persons, but they are totally equal. They are totally, each one's totally God. They are equal in essence to one another. Yet the Son is obedient to the Father, and the Son sends the Holy Spirit And the Father sends the Holy Spirit. That puts the Holy Spirit in a position of subordination to the Son and the Father. Yet they are totally equal. So being submissive does not mean inequality. But when you have human viewpoint that doesn't understand the plurality of God, that that the ultimate reality in the universe is a, a unity and a plurality. That's one of the big... Uh, pro- uh, problems in that that's existed through the history of, of philosophy is the how do you explain being and becoming or the one and the many and only Christianity answers that because in God we have one who exists equally as the many and that works out in terms of marriage and the home, and it works itself out in government. So that if you believe in an autocratic deity like Islam, or you have a problem with um, other aspects of God where you really don't work out the equality aspect, then you end up with an autocracy or a tyranny. And this ha- this happens in Eastern Orthodoxy. One of the reasons that the Eastern Orthodox countries have never developed anything related to uh, democracy or the equality of the the citizens, those are the parts, is because they have, uh, they rejected what was called the filioque clause at the Synod of Toledo in the 5th century. And when the Synod of Toledo added a clause to, I believe it was the uh, uh, Chalcedon Convention con, uh, um, uh, doctrinal statement that uh, the the Chalcedonian Creed that said that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father, but they corrected it at a regional synod at the Synod of Toledo. I believe it was 490, and and they added the phrase filio k in Latin means and the Son that the Holy Spirit 
proceeded from the Father and the Son because there's an equality there. And so ultimately in Eastern Orthodoxy, the Father sends the Spirit but not the Son. So the Son is in, it, it, there's a, there's more of a, a, uh, subordination of role, the Father, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit, as opposed to what I've depicted up here. So the parts don't have equality. So the parts aren't as great as the one who's ultimately in authority, the Father. That always leads to a view of the nation where the government has more significance than the parts, the citizens. After the Protestant Reformation, these ideas that are inherent in the triune concept of God worked themselves out in the political theory of the Puritans and the British especially that ultimately came into fruition with the American Republic because they understood that the individuals were just as important as the whole. And the whole was not more important than the parts. So you could give real value and significance to each individual citizen. But see, the push because of the sin nature is always towards tyranny and elevating one over the many instead of having an equality, an equal balance between the one and the many. And this is what happens in marriage. Submit to one another is an emphasis on the unity in the marriage. The wife submitting to the husband is an emphasis on the diversity in the marriage. But they are not opposed to one another. They work together. Then we go back to Genesis one twenty seven. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Men and women are equal in the being, the essence, and personhood and humanity, just as the Son is totally equal to the Father in his essence, and the Holy Spirit is completely equal to the Father in his essence. But they had role distinctions. Genesis 2.18, the woman was created to be a helper or assistant uh, to to, to uh, the man, and this term, as I've pointed out many times, is only used of God in terms of being an assistant or helper. So it's not a demeaning term. So wives are to be submissive to their husbands. God designates the quarterback. You have a team in football. They have they're all equally good athletes, but they have different strengths and weaknesses, different skills, and different roles and responsibilities on the team. The center has one set of responsibilities. The tight end has another set. The the running backs. All of this is different, uh, but they all submit to the guy who's calling the plays, which is usually the quarterback. So that all of that led me to develop something we'll just get started on tonight. It's something that a lot of people forget. I've taught this, I think, three other times over the last uh, 18 years, and that's the doctrine of the dance. Now, this metaphor didn't just generate itself in my head. The idea of dance was used as a metaphor in the Old Testament for uh, lifestyle. And after the destruction of Jerusalem in uh, 586, when Jeremiah is lamenting the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and all of the Israelites, or most of them, being taken off into exile, he wrote, Lamentations 515, The joy of our heart has ceased, our dance, our lives our lifestyles, has turned into mourning. That's what happens when we forget what God says about marriage and family and the role of men and the role of women in family. When this gets subverted, the nation will collapse. It happened then. It happened later uh, in Israel, along with many other factors, because there was a rejection of God's plan for the family and for marriage. So first of all, first point, dancing involves teamwork. Years ago, many years ago now it seems, I took uh, dance lessons. Uh, I took mostly country western 
dance lesson, being a good Texan, but it applies to any kind of dancing except for what usually comes across today as uh, in contemporary dance. I'm not talking about modern forms of dancing where uh, two people just get out on the dance floor and sort of gyrate, each doing their own thing to the music, but when you have a couple coming together and creating something that is attractive and something that is beautiful. But modern dance is a great metaphor for a lot of modern marriages. Two people who are together but separate, each doing their own thing but not coming together as a unified team. One of the metaphors I've often used to describe marriage is that in a biblical sense of marriage, you would have two people in one car going down the highway toward a destination. But in a lot of modern marriages, what you have is two people who manage to think they're going in the same direction, but they're really driving two cars and going down that highway at the same speed at the same time, but they're not together. There's no development of unity within uh, within the marriage. In uh, in classic dancing, you have two people who are dancing in something like ballroom dancing, salsa dancing, country western dancing, a number of other dances where the people have to learn certain steps. The one has to learn how to lead. The other has to learn how to, how to follow. There are clearly defined rules and steps and uh, movements, and both people have to work together to achieve the desired effect. So dancing involves teamwork with clearly defined roles and rules for each member of the team, much like, much like marriage. Christian marriage involves teamwork with clearly defined rules and roles as seen in Ephesians 5:22 to 33, Colossians 3:18 to 4:1, and 1 Peter 3:1 through 7. When the rules are followed, and when each person fulfills his role, the result is a in dancing is a fluid movement of grace and beauty where you see the two working totally and moving as one. But when one or the other messes up or tries to fill the role of the other, the result is catastrophe. I remember when I was taking country western, the way they would do it, they would teach us a movement, and then we would all be paired up, and we would practice that two or three times with one partner, and then you switch, and you do it with another partner, and you do it with another partner. And um, pretty soon in a class, you learn the streaks and weaknesses of different partners or, or different people that, that you dance with in the group. And I could always, within the first time, with, within about 15 minutes with any new group, could always determine who the feminists were. They always tried to back lead. They couldn't follow worth a hoot because they wanted to run run the show. And it was always a problem. And so you always had to, the man always had to adjust how he would lead when he had a woman who was that way. And I would, and I would, I guess I was fairly good. I, I usually had women tell me that and they would say, you know, you don't lead too hard. See, that's a problem. There are a lot of men don't know how to lead in life as a, as in dancing. They lead too hard. They're pushing the woman through everything. Or they're afraid to lead. So they're so tenuous in their leads that the woman really isn't sure what they're supposed to do. And I find that that is really true of a, uh, of a lot of relationships. The man either overleads and he's uh, borderline abusive, or he doesn't lead, and the woman's left without any direction. So this is a great metaphor for, for, um, for marriage. Second point is that two people cannot dance together without a common goal. The Bible says that two people can't do anything together unless they're united. Amos 3.3, how can two walk together unless they are in agreement? And um, in many marriages, there's no clear defined goal for the marriage. 
they just get married because their hormones are active or because they uh, don't want to be alone. There there may be a lot of different reasons. One of them views the other one as a meal ticket. Uh, There are a lot of different reasons people adopt for marriage, but the purpose for marriage is defined in the Bible is for two people to work together to glorify God and to fulfill God's mandate uh, for Christian growth and spiritual service. This is what happens in the garden. God first gave Adam a mandate, and then he said, but you can't do it alone. I will make a helper for you so that together they could fulfill uh, the mission that God gave the man. But what happens in uh, many times in, uh, you see it sometimes in dancing, is that, that they can't define what they're doing, and so they, they fall apart. And marriage, it's the same kind of thing. You have two people who want, have their individual goals, but they can't subordinate their individual goals to the goal of the marriage. If the goal of having a happy, healthy marriage that glorifies God is true for both of them, then they can achieve that no matter what. But unfortunately, all it takes to destroy a marriage is for one person to adopt another goal that is, uh, that's in conflict with God's goal for the marriage. If it's the man, then he's going to go through, uh, divine discipline and the wife and children, if there are children, are going to suffer by association. They're going to be, go through that discipline by association. That doesn't mean you bail out. But there has to be communication and discussion, and that brings in a lot of other things. Um, The common goal in a successful Christian marriage is bringing glory to God through the marriage team so that when and if conflicts erupt, then the final determiner is what is best for the marriage, what best promotes spiritual growth and spiritual advance for both the husband and and the wife, and what provides a better testimony for marriage. Third, and I'll stop with this point, we'll pick up the next ones next week, like any team, dancing has specifically defined roles for the two participants. In dancing, the male is the leader. And the woman is the follower. Now, I think it's more difficult for the woman because the man, if he's thinking, knows two or three moves out where he's going. But unless he communicates to her what they're going to do next, she doesn't have a clue. She's got to respond instantly, and she has to do it backwards. So the male's the leader, the woman's the follower, and that means the man is initiating, planning, and directing the movements of the woman. But in a good team, they're going to coordinate. Uh, in a good dance team, the man is going to say, this is what we're getting ready to do. So she's got a little warning. and She can plan for what's going to take place and what's going to happen. There's good communication both ways. And she can say, no, my ankle's weak. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and he better listen. There has to be good communication uh, between the two partners. So the man's the leader, the woman is the follower. She responds to his leadership, and the same is true in Christian marriage. The husband's the leader. He's the one who has final responsibility before God for the spiritual welfare of the family. He's the one God will hold accountable for it. And uh, the most superficial form of that for men is getting your family to church on Sunday, hopefully to midweek Bible class. But the role involves a lot more. It involves encouraging your your wife spiritually, providing an example of spiritual growth, living out your priorities in terms of your spiritual life. And then when it comes to having children, is setting that standard and that the man is the one who should be spending most of the time establishing the spiritual priorities to the children. He should be the one reading the Bible stories to the children. He should be the one taking the lead. Uh, we live in a culture where men are too busy and they leave that to women. But that communicates a bad message to women. In my first church, there were, it was a lot of blue-collar workers. Blue-collar workers are very important. 
But we have a problem with blue-collar men in this country is that they don't think spiritual life is all that important, at least in that church they didn't. And there were a lot of women in that church whose husbands would never come to church. And one day, uh, one of the four-year-old boys told his mother when she got up and said, we're going to go to church today, she said, he said, Daddy never goes to church. There's a lot of men that don't go to church. I'm a, I'm a man. I'm not going to go to church. At four years old, he understood that the failure of the men was, was to be his model. And he was going to be a failure in his spiritual life as well and not go to church. It is the role of men to provide that. That is the core of biblical masculinity. So that's the first three points. We'll come back and look at the rest of them next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things, to reflect upon what your word says, to recognize that we each have certain roles and they're to be subordinate to the mission, which is spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and glorifying you. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand where we have problems as men and women in these areas due to our own sin nature, and that God the Holy Spirit would strengthen us so that as time goes by, we can grow and mature in each of these areas. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.